This episode of Murder Was the Case was brought to you by our generous patron, Hal Shore. I know this one was of interest to you, and I hope you enjoy it, Hal. Hey everyone, it's Doc Murder, and you guys are all really interested in these Idaho student murders. I'm not. Don't get what the big fuss is about, but... Weeks have gone by, and you continue to be fascinated. So, some of you have reached out to me, can you cover these? And I think it's about time, so I've familiarized myself with the case somewhat, and that's what I'm going to be doing here, is just really giving my thoughts. Of course, I'll preface this with everything is alleged right now, nothing has been proved in a court of law. I'm not going to keep saying the word alleged, so anyone listening to this just has to always keep in mind that all information I provide and all conclusions I draw, it's all prefaced with the word alleged. Brian Koberger deserves a fair trial. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at the many news reports, seeing which information I find pertinent and reliable that is in the news reports right now. And then I'm using that to build up some idea of what happened and tell you my takes on it. Doesn't mean that I verify that information. How could I? So I reached out to some of you and asked, what are the things that interest you in this case? Because I really didn't understand it. And what I got back was three main themes. One, who is this Brian Koberger guy and why did he do this? What is up with him psychologically? So I wasn't surprised about that one. I don't think he's really that unique, but we can address that. Also, how could he murder four people with a knife in that house and not wake people up? No problem. We'll get to that too. And how did he get all of this violence done in a time span of about 15 minutes? How was he able to perpetrate so much violence without running out of energy? I'm going to tackle all these things. I just want to give you a bit of a warning, though, when you're getting all of these media accounts. Oh, people, I knew Brian Koberger. I went on a date with him, all that. These media events, they attract a lot of attention seekers. Brian Koberger, if he did do this, is really fucked up. Obviously, he's got psychological issues. But so are a lot of people that don't commit murders. I mean, the human race is really something to behold. And whenever there's a lot of attention going onto something or someone, people say, hey, I can use that as a vehicle to get attention to me. And so they might fabricate claims, they might exaggerate things that happened, or they might even be misremembering events. Like, could you imagine right now if you ended up in the news with this much coverage? Even if you're really comparatively normal to someone like Brian Koberger, Think of all the people from your past who are messed up or just manipulative or idiots, frankly, who you could just imagine appearing on the news right now and just giving wild distortions about you and their interactions with you, what happened, that sort of thing. I was involved in media on the Luca Magnata murder, like particularly right out of the gate, and so much of it was later deemed to be not really that relevant or kind of unreliable because of this. So I just want to give you all a warning. You're getting in a lot of information right now, but don't believe that it's all true. Some of it might never be contested because it's actually not really that important or it can't be contested. It doesn't mean that what you've heard is so. So I want to start with the second question that people had a lot. How could the offender murder four people with a knife and nobody hears? Well, you have a three-story house... There were roommates who survived the attack. They weren't attacked at all, sleeping on the first and second floor. Zana Kernodal, her bedroom is on the second floor, and so her boyfriend would have been in there with her. And then Gonzalez and Morgan were on the third floor. We don't really know how thick the walls are in the house. If it's a student residence, maybe it has been purposely built 
or renovated so that people have more privacy. I don't know. But I want to start off by saying, well, things were heard by one of the roommates who wasn't attacked. Around 4 a.m., I think it was, she heard Gonzalez playing with her dog, or what sounded like it. And then after that, she heard crying from Kernodal's room, a man potentially saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. And it wasn't until she heard crying again that she looked out and saw this figure in black clothing and a mask fleeing the structure. So things were heard, which in retrospect can be seen as clear signs that an attack was happening in the house. But people don't immediately leap to that. They're lazy. They're maybe not that paranoid, not that anxious, not that aware. And so they hear someone crying and think, ah, maybe she's upset at her boyfriend. Or maybe she's got some bad news. You don't go immediately to, oh, there's someone in the house. So it's not just whether the evidence can be perceived, it's whether it is it is interpreted as an attack at the time. And if it's not interpreted as an attack, it doesn't really matter whether or not you're receiving the evidence because the other people in the house don't act on it. I think we also tend to overestimate how loudly people react when they're being attacked and also how perceptive people are generally. One thing I can tell you, I've been consulting on murder cases since about 2014 now, so I guess we're going into like nine years. I know quite a few cops. I know analysts who've worked in this. And I'll just say to you that with more experience and the more you just get exposed to the realities of day-to-day -day violence, it becomes clear that questions like why didn't someone hear something or why didn't someone even see something, they just become a little bit more like, yeah, people don't hear things as often as we think they might, or people don't notice things. For instance, Cloyd has told me on several occasions how utterly remarkable it is that people don't notice anything. I believe one time he was part of like, you know, a tactical police team that was arresting someone in a restaurant and nobody turned around from their meals and was looking at them. He was absolutely astounded. Like here's a bunch of guys with guns and armor arresting someone in a restaurant and nobody notices anything at all. I've also heard many times from cops how a gunshot will go off in one apartment and then people in the same building on the same floor in the apartment next door don't hear anything. You think a gunshot, that's loud. We've heard gunshots before. How didn't you hear that? Well, they just don't. It doesn't mean the gunshot didn't happen, but whether it was some anomaly of the acoustics or they were distracted or they had other sounds going on in their apartment, people don't always hear things. And that goes for screams as well. Besides, if you live in the city or something like that, I'm sure there's plenty of times where you hear screams out on the street, but you don't go down and check it out every time and you probably don't even think it's someone being attacked. I personally have a real issue with that. I think if you're a young woman, you shouldn't be screaming in the street unless you are being attacked, because it's a boy who cried wolf sort of scenario. I responded to that frequently, but then I stopped when I was in the city. I, I stopped leaving my apartment and going downstairs to see if somebody was okay, because it's almost always a false alarm. I think also from watching horror movies and maybe action movies, thriller movies, that we tend to think that when somebody is attacked, they react by screaming in this high pitch at the top of their lungs. And I haven't seen any evidence to support that. Like, certainly sometimes they do, but I don't think it's typical. First of all, even if they're being stabbed or hurt, the adrenaline might be going so much that the pain doesn't really hit them until later. So pain that might prompt a blood-curdling scream gets kind of masked by all the adrenaline that they're going through. We're also so highly socialized, particularly some of us, we have different temperaments, and someone might come in and start pushing us or shoving us or 
even pull out a knife, and it's not our go-to response to immediately seek help and start screaming. We might do things that in retrospect are really silly, like ask them questions. What are you doing? Like, why do you have a knife? Are you going to hurt me? Trying to reason with this person, being almost embarrassed by the situation. I think this happens a lot more. People are confused. They're trying to process something that they didn't expect. It has great gravity, but it's also new and they've got seconds to react. And they're trying to understand, and maybe they're the sort of person who's used to speaking with people, and they don't immediately go into full flight or fight mode. And by the time they do, they're already on their way to being dead. So don't think that attacks that happen in real life transpire like horror movies. People react in all different ways, even to extreme things happening to them. If you think back, you've probably seen accidents, maybe even acts of violence, all strange emergencies in your lives that have transpired. And did they play out like they do in the movies? They rarely do. So the victim's not screaming, or maybe screaming when it was a bit too late, or not forcefully, or, or having more bass, or something more like a shout than a scream. I think those are all reasons why these attacks were able to occur without the house being filled with the alarming sounds of high-pitched screams, which immediately notified that violence was happening. Also, too, look, it's after 4 a.m. They've been drinking. Some of them are sleeping. If you're like me, if you're tired enough and you've had some booze, you could probably sleep through a train crashing through your wall. I am not unique in this regard. There are plenty of people like that. Put all these together, it explains it. It's just not really that remarkable, in my opinion. So what do you learn from this? Well, you learn that this crime isn't really that unique in those regards, and you learn something about the realities of how crime is perpetrated and transpires. Similar cases, right? You have Danny Rowling in Gainesville, Florida, the Gainesville Ripper, and he breaks into an apartment and goes upstairs, and same scenario, it's young women, roommates, who are living together while attending a post-secondary institution. An intruder comes into the home and has a lengthy, violent encounter when one of them doesn't wake up or react or anything. Think of Chi Omega, Bundy going into that sorority house and rampaging through there. It's not like everyone in there was aware that there was a madman inside who was bashing women's heads in with a log and raping them with aerosol cans and biting their buttocks. It was revealed eventually, but Bundy was able to go and do that for quite a long time, relatively, without causing alarm. And so nothing special here in that regard. Before I move on, another thing people overestimate, how much protection a general dog will provide you. Look, if you've got something like a Rottweiler or a Doberman, and it's an amped up dog and it bites people and it's kind of a bit on the edge, you're right. If someone comes into your room with bad intentions or even not, so just somebody who's a stranger comes in and you have that kind of dog, that kind of dog's going to attack them and it's going to be very useful. I will add that those type of dogs too are also more likely to bite someone who isn't threatening. So the dog just has more of a capacity for paranoia, aggression, and violence. But just because you have a dog, it doesn't mean that the dog is going to even react at all or react strongly to somebody coming in. So don't count on that. If your line of defense is like, hey, I've got a terrier, he'll let me know if some maniac is going to burst into my room and chop me up. Yeah, don't bet on it. You want to put a lock on your door. You want to have a gun if you're in a country that allows you to have that. And look how the assailant just controlled this dog, too. Like, didn't he pick the dog up and put it in another room or something? So, not shitting on dogs. I love them, too. They're adorable, fun to hug. You can make funny YouTube videos of them. But at the end of the day, 
I think, a little bit overrated in many ways. Also, when it comes to tracking down suspects, since I've been involved in the crime thing, I've seen dogs disappoint on more than a few occasions. Okay, so how did he do all of that violence in 15 minutes? And why didn't he run out of energy? I'll address the energy issue first. It's simple. Adrenaline, the stakes are high for him. If there are survivors or he is overpowered or this doesn't go well for him, he could lose his life in a counterattack. He could go to prison. So he is aware that his life is on the line. And so he goes into a fight or flight. I was involved in some pretty serious fist fights when I was a teenager. I can tell you that you're capable of some pretty remarkable things when the energy kicks in. Like I can remember in one encounter, I just punched the lights out of some guy and then one of his friends kicked me in the back and then a bunch of them were putting the boots into me and I got to my feet and sort of regained myself, got my composure, was ready to counterattack. And I can remember grabbing one guy, even though I'd already thrown a bunch of punches, even though I'd already taken a bunch of kicks to the head and the body, the adrenaline's just going so much. I remember grabbing this one guy kind of around the jaw and shoving him really hard, probably sending him like back a good eight feet. Can't remember if he fell over or not. And just being on autopilot, no sense of I'm running out of energy or anything like that. It's just what happens when the stakes get real. Of course, you can't ride that forever eventually the adrenaline is going to subside. Cardio does become a reality. But when it comes to stabbing four people, no, you're not going to get tired in the middle of stabbing. Strangling four people, that's something that would be a lot more difficult because it takes a sustained effort over, you know, maybe five to ten minutes with each to, like, really strangle someone to death. Stabbing, no. It can be a few blows. You hit the right targets. They're toast. Also, Koberger, he's in pretty good shape, at least at this point in his life. You know, he's got that sort of ectomorphic build. Looks like he could go running a long distance. So if he was overweight or something, this is what you might expect with someone running out of energy. But someone who is that skinny, they're not going to gas out easily. How did he do all of that violence in 15 minutes? Once again, I think there's a misconception about how long it takes for violence to play out. If you want to just get to the heart of this, do me a favor, put on a three-round UFC fight that goes the distance. So that means nobody gets knocked out, nobody gets submitted. The fight goes to the end of three rounds, and then a decision is made as to who won the fight. The former UFC fighter, Nate Diaz, was able to hit one opponent 238 times in a three-round UFC fight. So that's 15 minutes. And I want to point out, too, that that is pretty restrained violence. Like, these guys aren't just going full out. They're really taking their time. They're looking for openings. They're picking their shots. It is really masterful violence. And even still, they're able to hit each other like 50, 60 times over the course of like just even a five minute round. So then if you go to an attack, which is really one-sided, someone is receiving all of the aggression and violence and someone else is perpetrating it. They have very few defenses. They're being overwhelmed. A lot of blows, whether it's with a knife or with hands and feet, can occur within seconds. Like you really, you can stab someone probably about once every couple seconds. I think in 30 seconds you can stab someone arguably like 15 times. Depending on how quickly and ferociously you're doing this, are you really picking your shots or is you just raining down blows with this? By the way, statistic, most violent encounters unfold 
in less than two minutes. And in my experience, that seems quite high. You can stab two people to death on the same floor within a couple of minutes, maybe within a minute. This Koberger guy, if he did it, it looks like he put a lot of planning into it. I think he would have looked into where are organs that I can hit, arteries. You know, he didn't seem to torture them. He didn't seem like a sadist. He wasn't trying to drag this out. It was an act-focused attack, not a process-focused, meaning the act of murder is the central motive. And so he's going in, and from what I understand of the information we've received so far, he's probably looking to hit the most vulnerable areas. And so if he has that knowledge... And if that's what he's aiming to do, you can incapacitate someone and put them in a position where they are dead or unable to move and dying within seconds. So let's say at maximum he spends two minutes on one floor killing Gonzalez and Mogden. And then on the next floor, he kills Kronodal and her boyfriend. That takes two minutes then this probably like five minutes total just for the violence and it doesn't even have to be that much. And then it's just the time between getting in the house, which is not large, and moving around, I mean, another couple minutes. It's very plausible that this whole thing could have been perpetrated in 15 minutes. In fact, it wouldn't really need to take as much. It could have been done in 10 minutes. Again, if we go back to the attacks by Danny Rowling, they're more process-focused murders so he's committing acts of rape and torture he's conversing with the victims he's mutilating them he's posing their bodies that all takes more time these seem to be just stabbing attacks seconds really it can be longer but it can take seconds all right finally brian koberger lots to talk about here who is he what motivated the attacks well i'm going to say this is a classic example of killing up i coined these phrases they refer to very old principles of murder, violence. You can say there's killing up and killing down. In killing down, somebody attacks someone who they think is lesser than them in the social hierarchy. So maybe like a homeless person or a prostitute under some circumstances or racially motivated attacks. And uh, the opposite of that is killing up, which is something that we see with somebody like Ted Bundy or Elliot Roger, where they resent some characteristic of the victims and they perceive the victims as being higher than them in a social hierarchy and want to lash out at them for this reason. So I'll put it to you like this. If you can understand why a poor person walking down the street sees an expensive car and keys it. If you could understand what would motivate someone to do that, then you understand also what would motivate someone like Brian Koberger to go after these victims. So I'll spell it out for you a little bit more. For some of you, that will be enough. Let's look at Brian Koberger's past. He's in high school. Lots of testimonies that he doesn't have good social skills. He's overweight. He's bullied, socially excluded. And now here he is in his late 20s. Do we have anyone coming out saying Brian Koberger had a girlfriend? Anyone saying I was Brian Koberger's girlfriend? Anyone saying they slept with him? No. And I think that that's pretty atypical for somebody who is in their late 20s. So I am going to go out on a limb here and say that Brian Koberger is, although he may not think of himself as this or use these terms, in the common parlance, he is probably an incel, involuntary celibate, and he is angry about this. 
and he is resentful, and he doesn't see a way to solve his situation after probably trying for years and years and just failing at it, realizing he doesn't understand women, he doesn't understand people really, doesn't have any of the social abilities to do this. And so, the same way that you have the poor man who keys the expensive car in this sort of frustrated protest, you just have a more extreme version with somebody like Brian Koberger killing these very attractive, very middle-class, bubbly young women. I shouldn't have to explain it more to you. They are what he desires, carnally, but also socially, because they're status symbols. They've got the dyed blonde hair, symmetrical faces, evenly tanned, nice presentation of self, smiling, happy, it is what it seems like. And so that's what he went after, lashing out against it because he couldn't have it. After all these years of trying, saw no hope of getting it. To quote my favorite philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, the degree and kind of a man's sexuality reach up into the ultimate pinnacle of his spirit. There really is your explanation for the crime. I can imagine people responding, yeah, but people in Brian Koberger's program said that he was very forthcoming and outgoing in class, or they met with him and they talked about academic things, and he seemed normal, he was very talkative, he didn't stand out as being particularly weird, and that's a totally different way of socially interacting. When you're doing so in a formal setting where the conversation and rules of interaction are clearly defined and prescribed, people with social difficulties don't have as much problem, particularly if they're high intelligence too, because it's really more in interpersonal settings that are informal, such as going on a date, meeting people at a party, where the rules of interaction and what can be expected are not as clearly defined. That's where people with like social and affective problems like autism spectrum, perhaps some personality disorders, psychopathy, that's where they struggle more because the boundaries are fuzzier and things are a little bit more ambiguous. Looking at what people said about Koberger growing up, in high school, he had tried to sort of reinvent himself, wanted to become an army ranger. That's something that I associate with hero culture. Hero culture is things like police, military, firefighters, survivalists, and they're associated with a certain masculinity, one of fearlessness and physical competence and ability to control situations. And so if you look at Brian Koberger as somebody whose masculinity is really subjugated. He doesn't seem to be particularly athletic. He's certainly not successful with women. He can't really assert himself growing up. It makes sense that he says, well, how do I fix this situation? I also have to do something with my life. I know I'll become an army ranger. I'll get in shape. I'll develop all these skills and then that will prove to people that I'm a real man, that I am competent and put together. But he doesn't do it. And why doesn't he do it? Because it's not him. He's trying to be something that he's not. Later, when his academic career takes off, he expresses interest in joining the police. But once again, you don't need to get a PhD in criminal justice or criminology to join the police. You don't really need to have any degrees at all. It depends on where you are. Some jurisdictions have some college requirements, but 
if he wants to be a police officer, why is he spending so much time on university education? Well, because he knows that he can't be a police officer. It takes a certain confidence, physical adeptness, social skills to become a police officer, and he knows he lacks those things. So he might try to convince himself and convince others, do little cognitive tricks, oh, I can become this, but he doesn't have what it takes. And he knows it, so he tries to reinvent this in his doctoral year as, I want to assist rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. So that's hero culture, but with an asterisk, right? He wants to attach himself to the police, to that kind of hero culture, but not have to do any of the more practical, physical, or social things involved with that job. He wants to sit at a computer and analyze data. So you can see who he wants to be and who he is. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing any of this. In fact, there is a lot in myself that I see with this guy. When I had finished my bachelor's degree at university, I thought of joining the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the Mounties. And I don't know why I was drawn to that particularly, but then I realized it's like, Lee, you have a color deficiency. You struggle sometimes to tell the difference between red and brown and green, which is, you know, it's like a genetic thing I got from my mother's father, my maternal grandfather. So realistically, for that reason, and perhaps a couple others, I actually can't become a police officer. Like, they do not allow people with my disability, if you want to call it that, to be cops. Okay, well, I can't be one, but I am still really interested in criminals and crime. And so what I'll do is I will do it from more of a psychological, criminological aspect. And that's what I did. I'm here doing it with you now. But after, you know, maybe that week or something where I thought about becoming a Mountie and realized it was just impossible, I didn't consider it after that. So don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everyone who wants to be a cop or in the army, whether they're cut out for it or not, I'm not saying that they're psychos. I'm just saying that this is part of a pattern that you can understand with this type of psychology. He's trying to redeem his masculinity through it and establish a new self, but he can't ultimately. And so what does he do? Instead of becoming the hero in the story, he becomes the villain in the story. And that way he's still in the story. He still has a sense of who he is. He has some sense of a relationship to women, albeit a profoundly negative one. But it brings this long period of limbo that he's in to some sort of closure, doesn't it? As far as Brian Kohlberger doing his doctorate, in criminology. I know there's a lot of interest in this. It's really not out of the ordinary. It doesn't really say anything about him in itself. It could be relevant, but this isn't the first multiple murderer who has done this kind of thing. You guys know that the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, got a degree in criminal justice. The serial killer, Timothy Kraser, he got a degree in the administration of justice. I think he had a minor in psychology with that too. You have Stephen Griffiths, who was a serial killer in Northern England. He was doing his PhD in criminology when he committed his crimes and was caught. There's a lot more I could go into it. Once again, I understand it sounds unprecedented. So were these murders motivated by anger and resentment? Yeah, I'd put money on that. Were they motivated by thrill? Yeah, I think that was a part of it too. This is a person who clearly stalked the victims, planned it out. 
even if he wasn't going in there thinking this is going to be very exciting, putting the whole plan together, it gives a certain meaning to his life and his days, and then the actual execution of it, experiencing it, I think would have certainly been important for this offender. It could have also been a sex crime, too. Not just that he was angry because he couldn't get laid, and he was sexually attracted to these women and lashed out at them for this reason, but he could have actually been sexually turned on or gratified through the act of hurting them or stabbing. We don't have any evidence of that. I'm just saying that it's possible. So other than him saying that himself, what evidence would I need to see of that? Well, you'd look at the stab wounds. You would look at where did these stab wounds take place on the female victims? Were they in the breasts, in the genitals, the buttocks, or somewhere else? There could be one stab in a breast, for instance, but it's just incidental because there's stabs in the torso altogether. How deep are the stab wounds? How many are there? Are there clustered stab wounds? You've likely heard me speak about picarism before. That is a good indicator. So really the best thing would be for me to see crime scene photos and to read an autopsy report. And I don't think any of those are forthcoming, but down the line we will get that information and I'll be able to tell you if there was a paraphilic, perhaps sexually sadistic element to these murders. Here's another thing people are bringing up a lot. Is Brian Koberger a psychopath? Well, he could be. But you don't need to be a psychopath in order to do this. Psychopath doesn't just mean bad person or violent person. It's a very complicated thing. Nor is it just somebody who lacks empathy or capacity for remorse for what they've done. Those aspects really only account for about a fifth of the items on the psychopathic checklist. So to determine whether Brian Koberger is a psychopath at this stage... We look through his history, I mean, not just on the night that he committed this crime, but through his entire history, we have to ask, is he superficially charming? Is he manipulative, grandiose? Does he show impulsivity? Is he financially irresponsible? Did he have behavioral problems as a child, as a teenager? Previous criminal record, was it for a number of diverse offenses, or just one or two, or did it not exist at all? Is he sexually promiscuous? Does he lack realistic long-term goals for his life? So we don't have all that information, but you need to answer yes to quite a few of those in order to be able to really say, yes, this guy is a psychopath, according to Hare's psychopathic checklist revised. And I don't think we can do that, nor do I think we really need to. There's so many other things that you can be. Maybe his coldness, his social difficulties, his weirdness could be explained by him being on the autism spectrum. Maybe he could have narcissistic personality disorder, borderline. There's all kinds of possibilities beyond psychopath. I understand that's kind of a go-to, and I use it a lot, but I also talk about serial killers a lot. And most serial killers, I would say, probably at least 50% or more, are psychopaths, because serial murder is a very specific and unique thing. This is somebody who does it over and over and over again, and it frequently is more of a process-focused crime than an act-focused. This is just one mass murder. Guy doesn't need to be a psychopath to do this. Is there something wrong with him? Is he mentally ill? Of course there is, but it doesn't have to be that he's a psychopath. Is he psychopathic? Yes, certainly he's going to have higher levels than the average person. One thing I noticed early on is he has this look about him, and a friend of mine who's in psychiatry noticed this too. And don't take this too seriously, but I just want to share this passing observation with you. He has a look on his face in some photos that suggests something that you see on the face of 
people who have schizoaffective disorder or some kind of psychosis. It's like this vacant look. Difficult to explain, but once you see it and you point it out to someone else who sees it, you're like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's got it. Not saying that's what it is, because in some photos it looks like he doesn't have it, but I just wanted to share with you that I noted that too. I mentioned the Danny Rowling case earlier. It's one of a few that this spate of crimes reminds me of. I think it's a relevant comparison case in analysis. And when I did that, I noted that Danny Rowling dressed all in black too, and he used a K-bar knife. I'm pretty sure that's how it's pronounced. Um, K-A hyphen B-A-R. It's a marine knife. And this was what Brian Koberger used, or so I have read. So I did wonder, with Koberger being a criminology student and such, did he read about the rolling murders and not necessarily set out to copy them, of course you never know, but said, well, that worked out for Danny Rowling, wearing the black and using that knife. He got away with it, so maybe I can too. It's certainly worthy of consideration. All right, so those are my thoughts, observations so far on these Idaho murders. If you have any questions, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on the TikTok. Feel free to ask me them. I'm still not really buzzed about this case, to be honest with you. But I know that you guys are into it, so what I'll try to do is at least maybe once a month, as long as this continues to be hot, I will put out an episode with my thoughts, sort of like I did with the Silver Fox episodes, and just let you know what I think. But with that, I think that's enough on the Idaho murders and Koberger for now. Hope you got some answers, or even better, more questions, and I will see you next week.